Thank you to our sisters for that beautiful piece of special music. I ask that our baptismal candidates pay special attention to that message as you consider your step without fear that you will never walk alone. A special greeting to our brother celebrating his 75th birthday. Uh, Brother Gary Cluley is 75 today, so a special greeting to him. picture that Caitlin is working on putting up. I refer to this picture in my opening message. Earlier this year, Brother George Ramakan, who as you know is the Ambassador High Commissioner in the Commonwealth Nations, for Jamaica to England, to the United Kingdom, Ireland, um, I've forgotten all the list of countries that that position entails. I was hoping to, uh, I'm hoping it will come up here in a second, I'm hoping. There it is. And I referred to it in my opening message, but I thought what I would do is show everyone what had occurred earlier this year when he had an opportunity to meet with, to have an audience with, the Queen of England, the monarch of the United Kingdom. And we had discussed, as you recall, on Wednesday evening, all the protocol that went into this meeting. I think you saw it quickly flash. Hopefully we'll, the technical difficulties will go away, but if not, that's okay. But that meeting that happened earlier this year should never have happened. It was not supposed to happen. Had history played out properly, that meeting would never, ever have taken place. On January 20th, 1936, King George V died. And he passed that crown to his son, Edward. In fact, George, he himself was originally not slotted to be king, as he was second born to King Edward VII. His older brother, Albert, died before he, before he could become king. So the mantle passed to George, and George V became the monarch of the United Kingdom. Upon George's death in 1936, his eldest son Edward, the eldest great-grandson of Queen Victoria, became king. Except there was a little problem. Her name was Wallace Simpson. Edward's love for her, a twice-divorced American woman, caused a constitutional crisis in Britain. The protocol, and as we discussed, protocol is very important, the protocol surrounding the monarchy conflicted with their pending marriage. So after months of negotiation with the, on behalf of the monarchy, with the government of England, over several options, including authorizing the marriage, but preventing Wallace from assuming the mantle of queen consort, Edward made a decision that would change history. He abdicated the throne of England, and he passed the crown to his younger brother, Bertie, who became King George VI. You'll recall that story then played out in a movie recently, The King's Speech. George VI, upon his death, passed the crown to his daughter, Elizabeth, who now is closing in on the end of her 66th year as a monarch, the longest of anyone in British history, anyone. Except for this issue of a forbidden love, none of this, including the meeting of these two people here, would ever have happened had it not been for this forbidden love. In taking the oath of the monarchy, King Edward would have had to have promised to lead the British peoples and put nothing ahead of that service. And as we have seen over the last 65 plus years, that is something that Queen Elizabeth has taken very seriously. Of all of the issues that have come up in her family, 
She has been the one that has been the steady hand of duty. That has put nothing ahead of her duty as the monarch of Britain. She has a complete sense, above all else, of duty to the throne. Edward couldn't do that. He had something more important in his life than duty. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2. We began, we started with this scripture on opening night. I'd like to return there. 1 Peter 2. Verse 9. 1 Peter 2 and in verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, not persons of God, but we see here a collective that we are the people of God. Our, our folks here, that's part of the big body of Christ, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We have built off this theme here at this year's Feast of Tabernacles with the many inspiring and uplifting and edifying messages that we have heard preparing us for this future reality. But understanding, as we have also learned and been reminded, that it is a long process from justification to glorification at Christ's return. So today, I have a question to ask us. Is there anything that would ever cause you to abdicate and turn in your crown? Anything. Would you ever turn in your crown? Based upon the history of God's covenant people and the writings of all of those in this document you hold in your hand, it's a very valid question. Our instant reaction would be no. But history shows otherwise. History shows many have abdicated. In fact, abdication has been an issue since Eden, when Adam turned in his crown to serve another monarch. Is there anything, anything that would ever cause you to turn in your crown? That's what we're going to talk about in the remaining time this morning. Let's flip forward a few pages to the fifth chapter of 1 Peter as he concludes this letter to the, to the dispersed peoples. You'll see that referenced in the opening verses of this letter as he addresses the dispersed pilgrims of Israel, the royal priesthood of God as we've He has already reminded them they are. And he concludes his letter with some very profound concerns. We'll begin in verse 5 of 1 Peter 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to to the humble. So as he begins his concluding remarks, his first reminder is how we treat one another. That the body should be treating one another with humility, with care, with courtesy. You see those referenced in our core values over to your left and my right. Care, courtesy, and consideration. All that combined with this attitude of humility is what Peter is reminding God's people. Then he continues, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. In due time. We've heard this time and again this week, that this is a process. That God will make, make these things come to pass in due time. In due time. Another theme here this year. This process takes time. We are not instantly glorified. This process of sanctification takes time. 
casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. So again, as he's concluding these remarks, talking about how we treat one another, and to be patient because this process takes time, he points us to a complete reliance on God. A complete reliance, casting all your cares. There's nothing to fear. There's nothing to worry about. The Holy Spirit that we receive at baptism provides that help. And he, it's an important reference that he makes before he continues with the warning that he is going to continue with, which we then find in verse 8. Be sober and be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. When we leave here and we go back, and not all of us are blessed with a congregation to meet with on a regular basis. Some of us are on our own. You're not alone. God assures us here that what we experience, there are many in the body that are experiencing the same things. But he warns us with this language that it should not cause us to fear. He's not saying fear. He said, cast your fears upon God, but be vigilant. Be resolute and be faithful. There are realities coming, but we need not fear. If we are vigilant, if we are faithful, if we are resolute. Let's turn with me, if you would, to Revelation 2. We are looking at the concept of abdication. And I asked if there is anything that would cause you to hand in your crown. We find here in the book of Revelation some fascinating language to the churches in Asia as Christ reveals the future to John to give to his body to all those who will hear the word and obey the word. And he, before he gets into all of this prophecy and the, the, the beautiful writing that we see to give us some advanced warning about what will come so that we may be comforted by these words and not surprised, he starts out with an evaluation of his body. This body being represented by the seven churches in Asia. And we find some fascinating language here. Let's look down here in the, the first letter to Ephesus, down in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Unless you repent. Now, these are decent people of God. Go back and read the other description of them. I know your works, in verse 2. I know your labor. I know your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested what the apostles are and are not and have found them liars. You've been able to discern. You work hard for God. You can't bear those who are evil. But he has an issue that needs repentance, and that is that they have left their first love. It requires this warning to repent. When God tells his chosen people that they need to repent, we take heed. What is this first love? Let's go back to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. We'll begin in verse 34. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? 
And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The two great commandments, loving God and loving your fellow man. A great way to understand God's expectations as expressed to us through the Ten Commandments. But notice, there is a first and great commandment. There was a second like unto it, but there is a first and great commandment. But go back with me to Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 5. The Pharisees asked him, what is the greatest commandment? He gave them two, but he did prioritize them. He said this is the, there is a first and a great commandment. Deuteronomy 5, the second giving of the law, or the retelling of the law to the second generation before they crossed the Jordan into the promised land. And in verse 6, God begins, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number one. On this, the rest of the commandments, the rest of the law flows. And then as you can see, and we won't take time to do it, the rest of the Ten Commandments is laid out before us. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. So he gets through the description and the giving of all of these commandments and statutes and judgments. And then there's a summary here that we're getting into. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Of all this law... It is summed up and summarized in this one command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words, which I command you today, shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. They should be a part of your fabric, of everything that you do. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. Wherever you turn, this, these should be the lenses through which you act. The law of God. Let's go back to Revelation. Chapter 2, where we were. So we have this group of people that have a lot of good, godly character, a lot of works, patience. We've been talking about patience all week. Good works, discernment. But Christ is warning them they have left their first love, and this requires repentance. What is it when we put anything ahead of God? Idolatry. Idolatry. The second commandment isn't about idolatry. The first commandment is about idolatry. And the rest of the commandments are about idolatry. Anything we put ahead of God is idolatry. What is the one idol we all battle? Ourselves. Me. The me factor. So God is warning the church in Ephesus 
not to put anything, including you, ahead of God. That is a pitfall. That is a pitfall that may cause you to abdicate. And we know that because he says repent. There's a change that's needed to this group of people. Verse 14. Verse 14. Let's go down to the church in Pergamos. I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols to commit sexual immorality. Thus also you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans which things I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. These again are good folks. Go back to verse 12 and see what it says. These are folks who never denied the name of Christ. Never denied his name. Despite intense persecution, they stood up for Christ. Yet they were in grave danger because they allowed false teaching to creep into the congregation amongst them. And it was affecting the entire congregation. It was becoming a stumbling block to all of God's people. There is incredible responsibility placed upon those who are entrusted with doctrine. Doctrine is important. So much so that it is a pitfall here described for the body of Christ. But there's an incredible responsibility placed upon those who are entrusted with teaching. Let's go to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. Those who have been entrusted with this responsibility should never take that position lightly. This is not a self-glorifying position. This is one with intense responsibility. Verse 2. An overseer, then, must be blameless. The husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent. The list goes on. In fact, you can compare, you can compare much of this list with the list found beginning in verse 8 with the position of a deacon. But what stands out between the two is the ability to teach. The ability to teach. And that highlights the responsibility placed on those entrusted with doctrine. God describes them as worthy of honor and respect as they labor in the word, not because there's anything good about the person himself, because it is not about glorifying the person, but glorifying the Father. And also it comes with a stern warning. It's a stern warning to be entrusted with doctrine. Let's go back to Mark 9. To be entrusted with the opportunity to teach. Should never be a comfortable position to be in. It should be a position that we take very seriously. That we do not take lightly. Mark 9 verse 42. But whoever... Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That is the responsibility God places on those who have an influence over his flock. To be very serious about about what we say and teach. Matthew adds a little bit of color to this. Back in Matthew 18. Matthew 18. And in verse 6. Mark phrased it with the word stumble. Matthew 
here in verse 6 of chapter 18. It says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, to sin, there is incredible responsibility around the area of teaching. And when we go back to Revelation 2, we can see that as part of the pitfall highlighted to Pergamos. Back to Revelation 2. We see idolatry, which is, when you think about it, entirely encapsulating, but also very specific. We see false doctrine, false teachings, as another pitfall within the body of Christ. Verse 18 of chapter 2 will continue with Thyatira. These things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass, Listen to the fine comments Christ makes about these people. I know your works, love, service, faith, and patience. And as for your works, the last are more than your first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all of the churches shall know that I am he who searches the mind and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works." Part of the issue, the pitfall here with this group, was they allowed the impurities of the world to infiltrate the body of Christ. Sometimes it comes in the form of sexual impurities. Other times it comes in the form of influences of other religions and schools of thought that infiltrate the body. Where we don't look to this document, but we look outside of this document for influence. It can never be that way. It can never be that way. No matter how enticing, no matter how Christian some philosophies sound, if it's not in here, it doesn't define us, ever. Verse 24 highlights this. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan... Beware the depths that Satan will sink to in order to infiltrate the body of Christ. Beware is what Christ is saying through John to his church. Beware, watch for the depths that he will try to infiltrate his body. That is why it is so important not to be guided by philosophies of this world of any kind if it is not supported by Scripture and to bring it into the body of Christ. The work of purifying the body of Christ and readying it for his return lies in this book and this book alone. That's where we find our guidance, not the thoughts and ideologies of this world, no matter how nicely it is packaged. No matter how nicely it is packaged. Chapter 3. Verse 1, these things, says he who has the spirit, seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works and that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard and hold fast and repent a loss of an attitude of service. We must never tire of service to God through serving mankind and his people. We have heard multiple times this week about how long this journey is. We can't lose heart and become lifeless. We must always remain vigilant and diligent for God. That's why keeping these holy days is so important. These aren't 
while they may be helpful in an evangelical perspective, these days are for the body to recharge and reinvigorate the body, to give us impetus to serve, to recharge our batteries, to recharge our, our diligence and our vigilance, to recapture what these holy days mean so that we may then go back and be active in service. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6. Verse 9. Galatians 6 and then verse 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season, there's that phrase again, in due season. It won't be right away. But in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Don't tire of doing right. Don't tire of becoming better. Don't tire of serving God and his people and mankind. It may take time, but due season will arrive. Therefore, verse 10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. We can never lose this attitude of service, this attitude of vigilance and diligence in in working for God. And never tire of that. It is a pitfall that Christ warns his church about in those letters, specifically the letter to Sardis. Let's go back to Revelation 3. Here we see a final pitfall that is of grave, grave concern to God, to Christ, in these times leading up to his return. We'll pick it up in verse 17. To the congregation of Laodicea, Christ writes, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be truly rich and white garments that you may be truly clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. I am rich. I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. I don't need to rely on God. I can rely on me. I'll help God when I have time, when it fits in, when it doesn't interfere with everything else I'm doing. But I don't need God because I've got everything I need. I'm rich. I'm wealthy. This is not specifically to rich and wealthy people. This is the attitude that I don't need God, that I can be completely and totally self-reliant because we can't be. We can't be. You will never walk alone, we heard saying. All I need to do is coast into the kingdom. I've made it as far as I need to make it. There's no more work I need to do. I am good enough to make it. Because of how easy we have it here in North America, this is a warning that we need to pay attention to. An easy life is not what we've been called to. We have not been called to that. While we live an easy life, we can be grateful and thankful to God. But there's no need to expect that it will always be this way. But it's a pitfall here to the congregation in Laodicea to understand what true riches are to work on 
having white garments, the righteous acts of the saints, to be properly clothed, and to be able to properly see and discern. Salvation is a process. This is a running theme we've heard here. Amongst all of the things we've learned, the celebration of kings and priests, this Feast of Tabernacles, salvation is a process. Did you notice the two different commands to the body of Christ in these letters? When being warned of sinking into one of these pitfalls, God commands repentance. He commands repentance. Turn from your ways and come back to me. Turn from your ways. Return to your first love. Return to your first love. Be strict and precious about the doctrine that you hold true. Don't allow outside influences to infiltrate your family, the body of Christ. Don't repent from being concerned about yourself. These are all pitfalls that Christ warns his church here through the word repent. But salvation is a process. We are not instantly glorified as soon as we are justified. The sanctification process that we heard at the, at the Bible study on Friday evening talks about the length of time from our baptism until we are granted our spirit bodies as sanctification. But all of God's people, if you go through these, all seven of these letters, are encouraged to overcome. Overcome is different from repentance. And overcoming is part of this journey. Overcoming is what we do in part of the sanctification process. They are different concepts. And they are directional. And part of the sanctification process. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. They are different commands. Repent means to turn. Overcome means to continue forward. All of God's people are encouraged to overcome. When needed, God warns us to repent of the pitfalls that may grab us. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know, Paul tells the brethren in Corinth, that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Not rash, but temperate, patient. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. All of this that we're going through is for a crown that will never, ever die away. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. There is no need to be fearful or uncertain or wonder, am I going to make it? We stick close to God. We heed the warnings he gives to all of his congregations. And we stay tight to him through the Holy Spirit. There's no need to be uncertain. There's no need at all to be uncertain. Paul says this here. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached it to others, I myself should become disqualified. Salvation is a process, and it involves self-control. It involves resolve and being faithful and certain that with God's help, as long as we stay tied to the vine, connected to the vine, we have all certainty. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Paul wrote to Philippians in chapter 4, verse 13. We won't turn there. But as he says here, I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection. I do not let my body dictate my action. I do not succumb 
for the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. I let God's law and his expectations govern my behavior. I don't let me govern my behavior. Lest, because if I do, if I let me guide my behavior, I risk becoming disqualified. Lest I abdicate the throne, Paul says. Lest I abdicate. 1 Thessalonians 5. We've covered this locally in recent weeks. But here Paul has a threefold warning to the body at the end time. I'd like to look at just part three. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 19. We know this letter concludes in the last two chapters talking about the return of Christ and the saints that will be caught up in the air with him and all the events that will take place in the weeks, months, and years preceding it. And then Paul here has a message to the, to the brethren, which he divides into about three parts. We'll focus on part three, beginning in verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things and hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Paul's warning here to the body at the end time is to keep your foot on the gas and keep doing your part, relying on God through his Holy Spirit to help you overcome the obstacles the adversary puts in front of you. Don't quench the Spirit. Stay connected to God on a consistent basis through his Holy Spirit. Don't despise the prophecies. Don't look for easy things to hear. But understand that prophecy is comforting because it helps guide us toward the return of Christ. It helps us prepare for what will happen. Test all things. We talked about the pitfall of false doctrine. Go to your Bible when you hear things and prove everything from Scripture. And hold fast to truth. Hold fast to what is good. And abstain from every form of evil. All pitfalls that we see delineated for us to the churches in Revelation. Revelation 14.12, we won't turn there, but it refers to the patience of the saints through the keeping of the commandments and faith in Jesus Christ. This patience of the saints is the process of overcoming that we go through from baptism to glorification. This process of overcoming takes patience. Takes, resolute, re, re, takes resolve, that we are resolute in all that we do. 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4. Second Timothy is, as you likely know, chronologically the last letter of Paul before his death. There may be others, but they are not part of the canon. From a point of scripture, this is Paul's last will and testament to his protege, Timothy. And here's what he wrote to him near the end of this letter. Verse 7, 2 Timothy 4. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. Jan talked to us about the fallacy of the phrase, the finished work of Christ. While we are kings and priests in preparing so, we don't have that crown yet. That crown is laid up waiting for us waiting for us to finish our race, waiting for us to finish strong, to not succumb to pitfalls, to confidently, resolutely 
continue through this life, through whatever trials we may encounter. Finally, there was laid up for me this crown of righteousness that Christ will give to us on that day. We don't have that crown yet, but it is being prepared for us just as we are being prepared for it on that day. That should give us resolve as we leave this feast to go home and hold fast. To go home and hold fast. Let's go to Philippians 2. Let's take a bit of a tangent here in Philippians 2. Change course just slightly. Philippians 2. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Back to that issue we heard, message we heard from Brother Rick about the likeness of God. That we were made in his image. The goal was image and likeness. At creation we were made in his image. Likeness is this process that we like. Rick's message with Jan's. And this process to become made in his likeness. That this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ gave up his deity and became a man, tabernacled with his creation overcame the adversary and took his rightful spot on his throne beside his father as king of kings and was given back his crown of righteousness. But before he could return to his throne, he received a different crown. Turn with me to Matthew 27. He came to this earth, he tabernacled with men, with the goal being this crown of righteousness that would be his again when he would return and was glorified back to his father. But before he could do that, Matthew 27, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Before he could return to his throne and receive his crown of righteousness, he had to receive a crown of thorns. He, he was crowned with a crown of thorns so that he could then receive his crown of righteousness. Let's go to Revelation 3. Revelation 3. We read in Timothy that Paul's crown of righteousness was laid up waiting for him, as is ours. We don't have that crown in our possession yet. 
It is laid up for us, awaiting his return, awaiting the day when Christ returns and will give it to us. Revelation 3, verse 11 tells us, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Sometimes, sometimes, we will be asked to wear a crown of thorns. Sometimes we will be asked to wear that crown of thorns. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they treated me this way, they may treat you this way. Before we can take our crown of righteousness, we may wear a crown of thorns. Hold fast your crown. Hold fast your crown that no one may take it from you. Living God's way in this world may require a crown of thorns. When it does, hold fast. Hold fast. Revelation 20. Let's close there. Revelation 20. Verse 4, as Matthew read to us earlier this morning. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, who had not submitted or fell prey to any of the pitfalls that we have been warned about in Scripture. There's no idolatry in the successful saints of God. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. We know that's parenthetical. Referring back to the reign of Christ for a thousand years, he continues, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Because over such... The second death has no power. There are no more pitfalls. When we have successfully navigated with the help of the Holy Spirit this life. But they shall be called priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years as kings and priests in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Abdication can change the course of history. Don't let it change yours. As you leave here, be resolved to hold fast, regardless of what lies ahead. There is coming a day when we will follow in the footsteps of our Savior and exchange our crown of thorns for a crown of righteousness. 